Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Thank you for tuning into the SIDCast. This is the first episode of season two, and we learned a lot in season one. We learned how to do this thing and started to build an audience and continue to build the audience and just gotten some wonderful feedback from so many people. And now here we are in season two, and we're in June of 2020, and the world is completely, utterly different than where we left off at the end of season one at the end of January. We start season two of the SIDCast at a time when the world really is in tremendous crisis. The devastation of the coronavirus really can't be underestimated. And unfortunately, we almost certainly have a long way to go to get to the other side. You know, I feel for what's going on. So many people have died. So many people continue to die in the U.S., but around the world as well. There's not a single country spared as far as I know. And, you know, like many people, when this all started, I tried to read everything I possibly could because I wanted to understand what was going on. What's going to happen? What should I do? How can I protect myself and my family? And, and this is back in, in March when it started to hit. You probably remember those couple of days in March, March 10, March 11, March 12, March 12, Broadway shut down. Right around that time, I think it was clear that, well, disaster had struck. Uh, it was very clear this was going to be very real and very dangerous. We had been away in the winter a little bit and actually at a wedding, uh, in fact, two different weddings in the first week of March. And I remember flying home from Florida to Boston on March 11th. And I was busy wiping down my seat with a wipe, the armrests, tray tables, just like the experts were saying we should do. And if you heard a cough on the airplane, you were terrified, you were nervous, you were angry. Well, we got home and in self-isolation at home, it soon became apparent that there was just too much information out there. I wanted to know, but it kept changing and, and I didn't know what to believe. And, you know, president says one thing, the governor of New York says another thing. This governor does something different. And then the experts say this and the experts say that. It was inconsistent. It was sometimes extreme and it was sometimes very clearly politically motivated. My brother Simon and a couple of my close friends quickly became addicted to CNN. They couldn't stop watching. But it's not breaking news. When it's not really breaking, it's continuous. It's endless. And the talking heads were all there, and you didn't really know what to believe. For my own mental health, I ended up tuning out quite a lot. I mean, I had to know what I had to know, but I just tried to avoid going back and forth, reading the newspapers from cover to cover, reading everything that came up on Google. I just started to remove myself from that. And But then you get texts and emails from friends and acquaintances, and they're telling you, you know, I just heard New York is going under lockdown any minute now. Nobody's going to be allowed out. That didn't happen for 10 days and wasn't nearly as draconian as what had happened in terms of a lockdown in Wuhan, China. But the rumors were there. I mean, you didn't know what to believe and the stress is building up. And then we get to the vaccines. I mean, we're dreaming of that vaccine or of vaccines. But if you Google COVID-19 vaccines and you're going to get a quarter of a billion hits, and that's a big number. And some of those hits are going to say the vaccine is going to take decades. Others are, other articles and so-called experts will say, we've never done it this fast, but we might be able to do it between 12 and 18 months. And then there are reports that 
we might actually get a vaccine for emergency use as early as this fall. And then there's articles on how effective is the vaccine and what more needs to get done and how safe is it and how long is it going to take and how, what about manufacturing this and who's going to get it and what country's going to get it first and it goes on and on and how many doses are you going to need? It's enough to make you crazy. It really is. And I'm sure a lot of you are thinking the same thing. At some point, you just have to say, okay, I need to know what's going on in the world. I have to be a citizen of the world, but there's just too much. It's hurting. It's hurting more than it's helping. And you discover, you know, it's hard to know what the truth really is. It's too confusing. It's too overwhelming. It's too much. And it's too depressing. Well, into the breach comes a group of 10 scientists, all women, who go by the name the Nerdy Girls. They come from different subspecialties, but what they all have in common is a respect for science, a deep dislike of fake news, and a public service ethos that led them to try to share what we really know and what people really care about and what this means for themselves, for each of us, for our families, for our schools. And, you know, I'll go to their Facebook page. It's called Dear Pandemic, and we'll put in the show notes. You'll be able to get it easily. And you want to know what's really going on. That's where I'll go. And it turns out that one of the nerdy girls is actually a colleague of mine. Her name's Lindsay Lininger, and she's at Tuck School at Dartmouth as a clinical professor. And along with another one of the nerdy girls, Allison Buttenheim, I got them onto the SIDCast to record a podcast episode. We're starting season two. We know the world that we're in. Let's start with some sanity. Let's start with trying to understand what's really going on. Let's start with the science of what we know. And let's talk to two of the 10 scientists that already had such a big impact in trying to share what we know based on science with the latest knowledge, the latest information. Lindsay Lenger is a health services researcher. She specializes in healthcare for vulnerable populations. She was heavily involved in data analytics project for Medicaid for years and years. And as I mentioned, she's a clinical professor at Dartmouth now. And she's had previous appointments at University of Chicago, among other places. And her PhD, in fact, is from the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Alice Wittenheim is a PhD from UCLA, as well as an MBA from Stanford. Her research is how people make decisions about their health, and she uses behavioral economics to better understand the trade-offs and the mindset and the thinking that we all engage in as we think about how to live our lives and how to live a better life. She's at the University of Pennsylvania. She's got multiple appointments there, including in the Perlman School of Medicine. Allison called into the SIDCast from her home in the Philadelphia area. Lindsay called in from her office on the Dartmouth campus. And I sat in my dining room at home, a.k.a. the new SIDCast corporate head office. Let's start our conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm so happy to be here this morning and talking to a couple of nerdy girls, Allison Buttenheim and Lindsay Leninger. Welcome Thanks, to Sid. the SIDCast. Thanks so much, Sid. Great to have you. Now, this is just audio, even though we're looking at each other and recording this. And so we got to train our audience and know the voices. So hello. Lindsay, say hello. Okay. Let's see if we can detect that Hi, now. How about Allison? Allison? Okay, I think even I'm going to begin to figure that out, and I'm looking at you. So let me ask you first, this moniker of nerdy girls, were you both nerdy girls? Is that kind of part of your self-image, or just kind of catchy? Well, I can tell you the origin of nerdy girls. Our colleague Malia Jones, another nerdy girl, the OG nerdy girl, the OG NG, had written some stuff on Facebook about the pandemic, and I wrote some stuff that was sort of similar, and a mutual friend saw both of those posts and said, hey, everybody on Facebook, I'm just going to follow those nerdy girls for my news from now on. Um, and we have, we're just talking about launching kind of a, a social media project. And I said, there's our handle. We're those nerdy girls. Yeah, perfect. And, but actually when you're both in school, I, we can go back to high school <laughs> and certainly university. I mean, you both have PhDs, but were there a lot of other women doing what you were doing or interested in what you were doing? 
So, Sid, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas. I went to a big Texas high school. We loved football. We had a bond issue to build the football team, a new weight room and locker room. I was a cheerleader for a few days, or a few days, a few years. I was on homecoming court. So I don't know if that counts as nerdy, but I was always very bookish. And I think my friends at home always just kind of tolerated and were like, oh, that's our Lindsay. She reads a lot. <laughs> they were very sweet about it. That's funny. Well, How about um, you, I grew up in New England and went to a pretty high pressure, high powered boarding school for high school. So definitely surrounded by nerds of all varieties. You know, I think there was some of the gendered stuff of, you know, more of the really, you know, advanced math students were male than female. But in general, a lot of support to be my full nerd self from pretty early on. <laughs> right, right, right. And actually, since you started the the Dear Pandemic Facebook page and, then, you know, the Nerdy Girls stuff, have you been hearing from younger people, kids, girls in school, maybe with an interest in science? Has that started to happen? Because it's, it's going to happen, I think, as this well, thing so grows and grows. Our home platform is Facebook, and I don't think anybody under the age of, like, 25 is on Facebook. So <laughs> if anyone is seeing us, they're probably seeing us through their mom's Instagram account or Twitter feed or Facebook page. Right, right. I will say, though, That's with funny. respect to the Nerdy Girl piece, we are finding kindred spirits among retiree nerdy girls, mm-hmm. which I found really rewarding. Mm-hmm. My mom and my mom's a retired math teacher and her and her teacher friends, they've all taken up the nerdy girl moniker. And so that's been really fun. Right. Yeah. You know, it sounds like the type of thing that others must have used along the way. It's like such a good name and probably there. I forgot to Google it. It's probably so all weird. sorts of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, trademark on it, but yeah. <laughs> no, oh, yeah. Nobody's come after no, you and say, hey, that's no. the name of my movie. And <laughs> That's funny. So I was going to ask you also where you are all calling from. So Lindsay, where are you right now? I'm actually at the Tech School of Business and a senior colleague's very quiet office. I'm in my kitchen in Philadelphia, right by the art museum, right by the Rocky Steps. (laughs) Oh, by the Rocky Steps. (laughs) And I'm in my new office here in my dining room. I kind of like it. It feels good. Lots of space. And there's no one coming over for dinner, so I can leave my stuff everywhere, right? So maybe you could share a little bit about your backgrounds, and then we'll get into what you've been doing. So, Allison, you're a professor at Penn, and can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done, let's say, pre-pandemic time in particular? Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm an associate so professor at the School of Nursing at Penn, although I'm not a nurse by training. I'm a social and behavioral scientist. Um, I did a PhD in public health at UCLA, also trained in demography. People usually say, cool, photography? No, demography. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, how I frame my research now is I study the behavioral aspects of infectious disease prevention. So in the pre-COVID world, I look at things like parental vaccine acceptance in the U.S. How do we get parents to vaccinate their kids? Also work on take-up of HIV prevention services in South Africa, done some work on Chagas prevention in Peru, which is a vector transmitted disease. So working from a behavioral economics, behavioral science perspective, I design and trial interventions that encourage people to sort of take up preventative care. Right, right. And so would you say your background is more economics or psychology or a little bit? I have no formal training in behavioral economics. I do have an MBA. I did that way back when before the PhD. (laughs) We like that. that. (laughs) Uh, Always people say like, do you use that MBA? I'm like, oh, yeah, definitely use the MBA. But so really working right at the intersection of economics and psychology in behavioral science with a big dose of, you know, communications, health behavior, health education uh, thrown in. Right. 
it's really become a gigantic uh, area, uh, not just a, you know general recognition yeah. of Daniel Kahneman, who people in the field have revered him, and you know Amos Tversky as well. But you know you also have Thaler sure. with Nudge, and uh, so it's gotten huge recognition, I think. And I wonder if it's crossed into the political sphere very much. I don't know whether President Obama had he a team. I think he may have, and the, he did. Yeah, and yeah. I'm not sure if that's- it's been sort of folded. It was the Social Behavioral Science team at the White House, and it's been sort of folded into OES, the Office of Evaluation Services. But the Nudge Unit concept has taken over globally. Many states, cities, academic institutions. Our, one of my teams at Penn has just launched a nudge unit just for HIV in South Africa. So I think funders are interested. People see it as a really promising toolkit for behavior change. Right. Let me just say one thing about nudge, yes. which is the word. There's something very, very powerful about framing. All it is, is using behavioral science and particular flavor of it to encourage people to do things differently. So it's prescriptive and it's action oriented. And as soon as you put the word nudge, everybody gets, it takes off. It's really a fascinating, uh, a fascinating thing. Lindsay, how about so your background? My background's a little bit different. I have a PhD in health policy from the University of Chicago's Harris School, and I've spent my career as a translator, really between people who do academic research and people who use it to make decisions. So my career really focuses on teaching people how to think about healthcare data. And I spent a decade teaching policymakers how to think about healthcare data, and specifically those who design um, and are in charge of the Medicaid program, which is the program that serves the 75 million most vulnerable people in our country. A couple of years ago, I transitioned now to a business school here at Dartmouth, and I love it. And I love the chance now to teach managers and executives and leaders in the health industry how to think about healthcare data. So I am an educator and a translator at heart with a healthy mm-hmm. appreciation for the science behind it. Yeah. So Lindsay, one of the things I've noticed that a lot of scientists, they're not that good at communicating their ideas to a wider audience. And many times they don't even want to. They figure people should know that. And it's not their job to do it. And I've always thought that they're leaving a lot of potential impact on the table by not trying to do that. Now, I know that's not necessarily everybody's expertise, but and you're, so you're in the business of helping them translate that to impact. So have you seen any movement towards people in the trenches of the labs and the scientists trying to get their, their message out in a, to a broader audience? I have. I come with a lot of empathy towards scientists because their institutional rewards are not based on translation. They get rewarded for the grants that they get and the scientific publications that they write. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard to expect scientists to be providing this service when their institutions don't reward it. And that's the first piece. But I do think there's been a much more broad move towards science communications as social media takes off. And I really think COVID's been a galvanizing event. I really think there are a lot of people who are getting off the bench and into the game right now because one, it's so important. And two, because there's so much bad stuff being spread around too. Right, right, right. So this could be a bit of a hallmark in other fields as well. I was going to ask. You, I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you now whether you're seeing this or what you would anticipate. Will there be other groups of scientists and translators of science? People really understand the research, bringing it to a wider community in areas like what well, could be any area, but climate change is a really good example because there's so much information that's all over the map that is not accurate. Have you seen any of that yet? Or I'd say the climate change folks are actually ahead of the curve I agree. On, on SciComm, on understanding the science of not just communicating science, but the science of communicating science. 
knowing how you know people react to news or to data about climate, knowing how to frame messages so that people take action, so that people aren't discouraged or you know disempowered. I think that's they're a leader in that space. Interesting. I don't know quite where this came from, but you remember not that long ago, people talked about global warming. That was the word you used. And now it's climate change. And I saw this movie, I think it was Vice, and they had a little scene there, you know, that was about former Vice President Dick Cheney. I had a little scene about these operatives that said, let's reframe the whole thing because global warming is bad, but climate change is neutral. Mm. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, because that was a particular type of movie with a very strong opinion behind it. But the point still is pretty interesting, right? How you frame something is so important. And climate change is a much, much more neutral name for something. Global warming is pretty clear what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think even the folks who want attention paid to climate change, it's also a helpful change in terminology because you don't have, you know, there are places that get colder under climate change. And I think when that would happen, the anti-climate change or climate denier folks would say, see, it's colder here. There must not be global warming. Right, right. It's a more accurate term, and I think it works on, it works for all. So the Facebook page that we're talking about is called Dear Pandemic by the Nerdy Girls. And so how did this really come about? I mean, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but how did it come about that you had, how many scientists are part of this or scholars are part of this now? Uh, Right now, 10 from lots of different fields, maybe growing soon because the demand is growing. But yeah, we have 10 all female at this point, scientists from different, mostly clinical and social science fields and an amazing undergrad intern from the University of Wisconsin. (laughs) Right. Now, whose idea was this? This was the origin story, Lindsay. We should get this right. Um, We should get this right. (laughs) (laughs) So I alluded to our colleague, Malia Jones, who had this viral Facebook post that started out as an email to friends and family in early March, I think March 3rd or March 5th. And it was sort of what I'm thinking about the pandemic this morning. And it was just very clear, like, Yes, we have to pay attention to this. No, we don't have to panic. Yes, you have to wash your hands. Yes, you're probably going to have to cancel a lot of travel. And it really struck a chord with her network. She put it on Facebook. It went, you know, 100,000 or so shares. Mm -hmm. I had written something sort of similar. And a colleague at Penn, who is now one of our nerdy girls, Ashley Ritter, nurse scientist and gerontologist, said, you know, your posts are great. You know, your tweets are great. You're tweeting great stuff. More people need this good information. And she was saying, you know, from my background, the friends and family in my background are asking me all sorts of questions and they're getting bad information. Could you get stuff out on Instagram or Facebook? So it was was Ashley's idea. And I think on March 10th, I threw up the Instagram account. It was called Nerdy Girls, Those Nerdy Girls. And about two days later, we changed it to Dear Pandemic. And March 12th, I was pushing people from Facebook, go check us out on Instagram. And a bunch of people were like, I don't do Instagram. Can you have this stuff on Facebook too? So like, all right, we can have a parallel site on Facebook. So that went up late in the evening on March 12th, which for most people was before stay-at-home orders were in place, still early, you know, early in the pandemic. And we added Twitter a few weeks later, which is also growing rapidly. So we're a three-platform project right now. (laughs) You know, March 12th was actually a watershed day in many ways because I was talking to Jerry Zachs, who's a Broadway director. He was directing Mrs. Doubtfire. It was in previews. And I think they had, they went through three, maybe three rounds or three shows. And then they got the word in the afternoon, Broadway shutting down. I mean, everything. And and even from a personal point of view, my daughter lived in New York. She's now a refugee from New York, as mm-hmm. many people are. But my niece, who lives in Toronto, was flying to New York and they were going to be together and they were going to Jagged Little Pill. They had tickets oh, for that. I think it was a Thursday night. I think that was what March The 12th, 12th was a Thursday, yeah. 
Yeah. And last minute, my niece was reading and worried and calling me up in tears and didn't want to go and wanted to go and knew that we had bought the tickets, et cetera. And that was it. And then I'm just by coincidence, we were away ourselves, my wife and I, for a couple of months in winter in various places. And we came back on March 11th. And then I start hearing, see, this is part of when you have something in your head, anytime you hear anything about it, you remember it and you don't remember anything else. So that's why March 11th, 12th are the watershed. Aliens bias. Yep. Aliens bias. Availability or whatever. Yeah. It's very, it's like when you're shopping for a car, you're looking for a new Volvo. Well, you see every Volvo going by and you never... So anyways, those were watershed days and uh, things really change quickly, I think, at that point. So you get a lot of questions that come in, but you have your own topics as well. I mean, what's the balance there? Because your structure is you answer questions, but you probably pick the questions you think are the most useful questions. Did it start right away with questions or you did post yourself? Well, we start as a Q&A format. Yeah, start a Q&A. And so how do you pick? There's 10 of you. Do you start fighting it out to see which question is the one you want? We, we are running the whole thing on a Slack workspace, Sid, with mm-hmm. channels. And we have shifts. So you take a shift, you know, morning, afternoon, or evening. I sign up for that on a Google Sheet. And a couple of the channels on the Slack are, you know, topics we should cover. Basically post fodder you know, fodder for the next post. And as we're all reading the news and reading the science, you know, people will sort of throw good new article or, you know, update on tests or update on therapy or update on guidance from the CDC. And then people will just grab one of those and write it up as a Q&A for their shift, for their post. So we try to do three posts a day. And is there actually a question from someone or you create the question to, to answer what, you know, make the point you want to make? Or a little bit of both? We usually write them as a Q&A, even if that specific question hasn't come in. But because it's a Facebook page, followers can also just post a question. Um, we have to approve them because we want to have a little bit of control over what turns up on there. But I would say we are also answering anywhere from two to five just inbound posts that are usually framed mm-hmm. as questions. Sometimes they're framed also as like vet requests, not veterinarian, but like, could you vet, like, I saw this, like someone uh, posted the pandemic video and said, Hey, I saw this. What do you guys think? You know, can you give us your take on this? So we're right. being asked to kind of curate and validate stuff that people see. So did anyone on your team actually study pandemics before this, the Spanish flu or back in the middle ages or anything like that? Malia might be the closest in that Malia and I both study vaccine acceptance. So, you know, we've looked to history for, you know, when have people been willing to versus not willing to vaccinate, but we have no pandemic historians in the group. It's probably a gap. Yeah. And maybe you get questions, probably have, how is this different than 1918? And in fact, that's a question I have for you, as far as you know, because there wasn't much da- as much data then and not nearly as much information. I don't know whether there was fake news, so to speak, back then as well. I'm sure there was because it goes back to as long as there have been humans on Earth, I suspect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But how different is it? Is that something you thought about or even written about? So, Sid, I think I'm going to write that post next week. <laughs> You've given me good posts. Yeah. How is this different than I so glad to Glad to help. <laughs> So Allison, feel free to step in. I'm not a 1918 pandemic expert, but I do actually teach it in my healthcare analytics and society class. And there are a lot of parallels. So the virus themselves are different. 1918 flu was a flu virus. And what we're dealing with now is a coronavirus. But it is interesting because the people who I read on this subject, specifically Michael Osterholm, 
mm-hmm. who's one of the giants in the field in Minnesota, he's written a nice technical report that details that this coronavirus happens to be behaving more like the 1918 flu virus than other coronaviruses that mm-hmm. have caused pandemics in the recent past. So he sees a lot of parallels and I trust his take. And, you know, everything's different now, the testing, the treatments, the information. And so I just think that our capacity for supportive care in the absence of a vaccine is much better. We have clinical protocols, we have treatments. So I think the context in which we're living is different enough that it's not unreasonable to be hopeful that we'll have a better outcome. No one has a crystal ball, but. (laughs) I think another interesting parallel, there was fake news in 1918, it was just a lot slower. We had slower fake news. Mm -hmm. But we also had, you know, you see these beautifully hand-drawn figures from newspapers. All our discourse now around flattening the curve and all those images and animations you see of curves being flattened, that comes from a figure that compared, I think, Philadelphia to St. Louis in their 1918 response, basically how quickly, you know, schools and churches and public events were shut down. Philadelphia was the didn't close fast enough and had the big spike of cases. St. Louis, I hope I'm correct that it's St. Louis, closed soon and had the much flatter curve. And it is those two shapes that have been stylized into our our flatten the curve discourse now. Right. And that same logic holds because how this is about healthcare and how humans transmit the disease. And that advice is still valid today. It is. Yeah. And that was all about the the current discourse around flattening the curve was making sure we didn't overshoot our health system. We didn't fill up hospital beds and ICU beds faster than we could we could provide them. Yeah. I'm a big fan of history and how people think over time. And of course, there's the old story about people not winning the last war and that type of thing, which happens in business all the time when you come up with a you know a way of dealing with a competitive threat that worked really well in the last internet boom but it doesn't work so well today and i'm wondering whether you, i mean i know you haven't studied this in tremendous detail yet but if there's uh, i think there are any lessons from 1918 that don't apply today or that might not apply today or yeah like what can you take from the past that would be a good lesson be something we should be doing like flattening the curve as you described and what might be maybe less valuable advice today. Could I look 60 years back from that and talk about Jon Snow and the cholera outbreak in London of 1854? Because I think there's some really good Real lessons from there. Yeah, that's, that's an impressive <laughs> segue, Allison. Okay, go for it. <laughs> um, well, when you were talking about sort of do you study historical outbreaks? So one of the, and there's a lot of apocrypha around Jon Snow removing the pump handle, but one of the things that really paid off for Snow and his collaborators was the shoe leather epidemiology, was going door to door and finding out, you know, where are you getting your water? Who in the house was sick? Who in the house died? When did that happen? And, you know, sort of making maps. And I think it's a great argument for, you know, needing that, like, you know, frontline, it isn't very sexy, but doing the epidemiology to understand disease transmission and patterns of risk, and also doing contact tracing, which is, you know, we keep talking talking about test, trace, isolate. And I think trace is getting a little bit ignored. We, once caseloads drop in cities and we start reopening, we are going to need to be able to chase down every case and ask them who their recent contacts were and get information to those people about quarantining and testing and, and potentially isolating. And, you know, we got that method and that approach to sort of community epidemiology started in 1854. Mm. 
right? There's no replacement for the shoe leather, as you say. You know, <laughs> there's none. Yeah, we think of in our modern era, we should come up with all these smart shortcuts, but it's not quite that way. And Sid, to segue Allison's response to back to your question, mm -hmm. this isn't so much of how things are different, but how things are the same from 1918. I think a lot of people who think a lot very hard on these issues are really fearing the potential second wave. And we hear about this from 1918, that many places the second wave was the most deadly. So I think that that has become a big part of the discourse and a big part of the focus among scientists. Can we prevent a second wave that is as harmful as or more harmful than the first? And I think contact tracing is one of the ways that we can help prevent that. Yeah. So we're now in June and a lot of parents are thinking about summer camps. Many have closed. <sighs> they closed. Others are undecided. And then, you know, what are you going to do with your kids if they're not going somewhere in summer when the weather is great and you just want to be out? So, and I think you've written a little bit about this as well. What's your advice about summer camp? And maybe the advice is to parents. If your kids go to a summer, whether it's a day camp or a sleepaway camp, that you, they've been going before, they're, they're desperate to go again. That would have been the case with me as a kid and my daughter years ago as well. Is it a good idea? What should you do if you do send your kid to minimize the risk? I think, you know, the reality is most parents won't end up making that decision. I think, you know, camps will make the decision to, or the states may make decisions for camps about whether they can even open or not. But, you know, the same way we think about schools reopening in the fall, you know, it's pretty easy to tick off some situations that will be lower risk than others. So smaller groups of kids that stay in tight kind of closed pods or clusters or clumps, whatever you want to call them, there is you know, less mixing, smaller groups, less mixing, more time outside. Of course, attention paid to all the hygiene. That's kind of a, you know, a must do. And you could argue, and there's a lot of buts and assumptions, but you could argue that a long sleepaway camp session with careful attention paid to arrival and departure with a fairly small group of kids is not a terrible way to have your kids spend the summer. That's probably safer than hundreds of kids at a day camp where everyone's like going home every day and coming back and going home every day and coming back. And there's lots of mixing during the day. So it's all gradients of risk. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting because in a sense, get kids in a summer camp, they're in isolation <laughs> from right. the, rest of the world. I mean, it's a big isolation group at the beginning. So I understand that. And for parents that are thinking about whether the kids, they're not going to go to summer camp or they don't usually go to summer camp, they are going to be out in the street. There are still some neighborhoods where you can go out in the street, talk to friends. and It's not all play dates, but even play dates. I see it in our block here, you know, with some young families here and they're getting together. I don't see the big groups of parents getting together, but the kids are out and how do they not talk to their friend? How do you keep that from happening? I don't know how you fix that problem. What do you think about all that? So I'm pitching that to Lindsay, yeah. yeah. Has kids. <laughs> I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. We have had no child care for over two months now. My husband is also on the faculty at Dartmouth and this is our reality. And Sid, I don't know the answer. Everybody is figuring it out mm -hmm. on their own. You know, there's some, like Allison said, there's just no good choices right now. There's only trade-offs. And we've entered this phase of the pandemic where the focus is on personal harm reduction as opposed to institutional level shutdowns. And so everyone is doing calculations about how to reduce their risk for their own personal context 
We have some really good friends in Hanover who have also been very careful about self-isolating. They have kids, our kids' ages. They're our best dear friends here. We went to college with the man and the couple. And so we've potted up, if that makes sense, to provide mutual support Mm -hmm. and have minimized contacts outside of that pod. But I think the answer is going to look different for everyone's unique context. Right. Right. Yeah. I have heard more of that kind of the, even the pod term, right? Mm-hmm. You have two family units and they've been extremely careful. There's no one that's sick and they then expand that a little bit. Exactly. To expand it too, too much. much. <laughs> yeah. I think and then nobody knows what that is. What's too much anyways. Right. Isn't it? That's going to be the name of the game for the summer is people kind of figuring out their comfort level in, you know, how big does that pod or bubble get? We were asked, I think on one of our channels, you know, do you have an example of a written agreement between families <laughs> that are bubbling up? Um, no. Or do you just have to go on trust here? Our version of that, I have an 18 year old and a 21 year old, both spending a lot more time at home than they imagined this spring. And I think for the 18-year-old who's a high school senior, the question is going to be like, how big is the friend group? And I don't think we're going to sort of bring the parents and the families into those pods, but I think all the parents are interested in sort of collectively helping the kids figure out what a reasonable sort of summer crew is and and what are the rules they have to follow. And I'll tell you, 18-year-olds, like it's a little hard to think about them, you know, maintaining their six-foot distance and keeping their face-to-face visits to 10 minutes. And, ah, but, you know, that's that's going to be how the summer goes. Right. right. You know, I was going to ask you just different topic, same theme, but what's going on in Sweden? Because they took a very different approach, at least just from reading the press, it seems that they have. And and then it sounded great. And then it became a very political hot potato with people, you know, people that were very pro-economy saying, look, look what they're doing. Why are we so worried? But now, more recently, I think I saw there was a bit, a bit of a blip in terms of the number of cases. So what do you think about the Swedish experiment, so to speak? It's a different model than what we've seen in, in Italy and in France and Britain and certainly in the U.S. Allison, do you want this one or do you want me to take it? I totally want you to take it. I have a hard time talking about Sweden. <laughs> well, I have no sort of emotional thoughts on this, but I do. I'm going to start by saying the approach in Sweden is quite different. In theory, they went against this broad shutdown of everyone, prioritizing instead protecting the most vulnerable in the nursing homes and the elderly and with risk conditions. Now, the problem is that in theory piece really hasn't been executed so well. So if you look at their per capita death rates from COVID in vulnerable populations, it's getting pretty alarming relative to other comparator Nordic countries. So... It's hard to know what's right. I mean, I think five years from now, we can all look back and be like, oh, Sweden, everyone got infected early. They missed a second wave. In the end, they had fewer deaths. They were geniuses. No, no one has a crystal ball, right? And what we're seeing in the present is that their vulnerable populations are dying at a much higher rate than comparator countries. So the fact that it's been politicized in the US is unfortunate. And where I do get reactive about the Sweden case It's the worst form of misinformation I have consumed in the past week. I have seen more bad infographics and data from Sweden that just makes my blood boil. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I had someone from my personal network send me this infographic comparing Sweden to Illinois and saying, look, Illinois has so many more cases per cap and so many more deaths than Sweden. And I'm like, can you maybe compare Sweden to a better comparator? Illinois is different than Sweden on so many dimensions that I don't even 
Like that is a completely useless comparison. The other frustrating thing about that infographic was it said, you know, Sweden, you know, schools open, free to be outside, Illinois, house arrest. House arrest. (laughs) That was how they described, you know, what Illinois citizens are facing right now. House arrest. You know, and I lived in Chicago for six years and I'm advising a group of Chicago MDs right now too. So this thing just made my blood boil. But so I think the bad data piece of it's bad. Allison, do you want to add anything? No, I mean, I would definitely, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, maybe five months from now, we will put Sweden on the short list of like interesting country case studies to, you know, it, it will always make the list of, you know, South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, like what did different countries do to, you know, to end up where they ended up. So it's it's definitely an interesting case study. So was the scientific logic, so to speak, in Sweden that it's a small enough country, people will pay attention and there will be herd immunity at some point. Is that part of their thinking? Implicitly. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's on record actually saying that. They're very careful about their messaging and they have good epidemiologists working for the government there. But Mm -hmm. I think that is the hope and that by getting people, I mean, and it's a gamble, right? They're hoping that they can reach herd immunity faster, which might protect them, might protect them from any potential second wave because so many more people will have already been exposed relative to say the United States. But that is a big gamble. Right, I was gonna ask you about the whole concept of herd immunity as well. Does it exist uh, when it comes to COVID-19? Do we know yet if it will? Stay tuned. Allison, yeah, that's you. So many unknowns, right? Does having had the disease confer immunity? If so, for how long and how robustly does it do that? And do you have to have been really sick or does, you know, any infection confer that? And then based on what we know about transmission, what percent of the population has to have been sick for our, you know, our reproductive number, our R naught, or our effective number to get below one. And, you know, R naught is a moving target. We don't say that a disease has a certain reproduction number. We say, you know, in a given place at a given, you know, sort of population mixing level. So those are all moving targets. It's probably not 95%, which is where we need to get for measles, for example, to, you know, that level of, of vaccination or protection in a community because measles is so infectious, very easy to transmit, but it's not 20%. There was that 20% number was floating around for a while for coronavirus. We only need to get to 20% in order to, to have herd immunity. And it's likely not that low. So somewhere between 20 and 95 <laughs> I like that confidence, in, in but um, but that assumes that there that once you got it, you're not going to get it again, right? Yeah, and which we actually don't really know yet, do we? We don't know. I mean, I think there are encouraging signals that most of those sort of anecdotal stories of like got it a second time, you know, most of those you can kind of rule out as having been something else going on. But we won't know. We won't know about three year immunity. For three years. Uh, <laughs> so. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so people are uh, out and about more and more and wondering if you're wearing a mask or you're not wearing a mask, how risky it is. And so I'm out starting to bike again. Finally, the weather, the weather's gotten nice up here in northern New England, right? And so you pick up a little bit of speed and you think, and it's hard to be biking with a mask on, especially when you when you get to be a little bit older like I am now. Uh, you need to breathe as much as you can. So what should people do on the street? Whether this is, and I know it's different in a little town like I'm in, in Hanover, New Hampshire, versus New York City or Philadelphia, just by density. But what do we know about how risky it is to get infected by just being out in the street? I think you're looking at me, Lindsay, through the... <laughs> through the weird (laughs) eye contact, non-eye contact camera here. Um, All right, let me take this. So a bunch of different sub-questions in that question. We know outdoors is going to be lower risk than indoors. 
we are operating as if this is still a droplet transmitted disease versus aerosol transmitted or airborne, although that line is fuzzy. I think one of the useful things coming out of studying this virus has been, you know, that it's not just droplet borne or airborne, that, that, you know, there's some fuzziness there. For both of those reasons, you know, being outdoors is, is going to be lower risk. It's never a bad idea to wear a mask. I'd like to kind of reframe the question from like, where do I have to wear a mask Mm -hmm. to if they're going to work, there's both sort of a social function and a disease prevention function of masks. And I will admit I was slow to get on the masks for all bus, you know, back in late March, early April, I was like, no, save them for the healthcare workers. It's not going to reduce transmission, save them for the healthcare workers. But I think we're at a point where It does make sense. We have a lot of asymptomatic transmission. So we have people who are sick, but not symptomatic, who are still able to shed virus. And so for that reason, everybody masking up, it's just going to be what we do. And depoliticizing it as much as possible, I think is important. So there's the question of like, do I need to wear one while I'm biking? Is that a low risk or high risk event is one question. But like, Am I asserting my liberty or my freedom if I wear a mask or not? Like, it would be just great to take that whole dynamic off the table and have it be as automatic a behavior as, you know, taking our shoes off when we go through TSA now at airports. We just, we walk out of the house, we put a mask on. Are you safe biking around in a small town without one? Probably better than, you know, biking right next to a bunch of people or hanging out with all those people you biked with, you know, right after your, your bike ride, you know, drinking beers or whatever. But there are reasons other than get protecting your droplets from getting out and protecting other drop protecting you from other people's droplets reaching you. Those are not the only reasons for everyone to wear masks. So this mask thing, I've always found it a little bit confusing right from the beginning. And the idea is, first of all, you see in Asian countries, everybody or almost everybody's wearing a mask yep. and you saw that at a much higher rate way before anyone knew that COVID anyone even knew that word COVID. And so you're told to wear a mask because that'll keep you from transmitting these droplets or whatever to others, at least greatly reduce that. But you're also told, well, it's not going to keep you from getting it from someone else. And I've never understood that dynamic, how one works and the other one doesn't. Could you help a little bit on that? Allison. <laughs> <laughs> so we wrote a great post on this. It's the ingress, yeah. versus, this ingress <laughs> transmission. Nerdy girl wrote a great post. Different nerdy girl, Amanda did. So one of the reasons why we think masks aren't going to maybe do as great a job of protecting you from inbound stuff is that the reason the mask protects you is because that inbound stuff lands on the outside of the mask. And there are a lot of behaviors. I mean, there's the physical protection of the mask, but there are all the behaviors of putting it on and taking it off, what we call donning and doffing for PPE, and all the other behaviors around touching our face and hand hygiene that may kind of cancel out or at least attenuate the that inbound protective benefit of the mask. The other big unknown here, and why I think we were all slow to sort of get to mask for all, is this idea of asymptomatic transmission. So people may be wearing it thinking that they're wearing it to protect themselves, they may actually be shedding virus. And so the kind of keep your respiratory droplets on your side of the mask outbound, it's just the more clear cut, more obvious protective factor. Right, right. Yeah. And so the argument that you just said about the inbound is it's not that the mask is not going to help you. It's your management of that mask that will reduce the odds that it's going to help you. The mask itself is going to do a good job if you were perfect or close to it in the donning and the doffing. And as long as that's possible, which I think it is because people could be trained to do that, then it makes it would make sense. Right. 
Yeah, that's right, Sid. And just to add one more piece of context, part of my initial reticence around the masking for all, which I'm totally on board with now, is the bench to bedside translation of the effectiveness of masks was really interesting. So in bench conditions and ideal lab conditions, it looked like masks were protective, but out in the wild and populations, the population research showed that they weren't effective for protecting you. So in theory, we know they're protective. Out in the wild, they don't demonstrate to be very effective because of this donning and doffing approach. So we all need to get our conditions more like those in a lab study of the masks than how people just kind of on their own use them. Yeah, that's yeah. the other thing about these lab studies that they, yeah. you read about that, but that's not the way the real world. Exactly. <laughs> We don't live in a lab and it's like also, you know, mail coming in or packages and how long would some material stay on cardboard versus metal? And, you know, you read what the lab studies say, but you have no idea what it how that translates in, right. your own, in your own house. Right. Any package that comes in just kind of sits by itself in the corner, has a timeout for a while. Right. <laughs> when I feel when I feel comfortable, I'll go get it and then I'll go wash my hands after I open it. Whether that is necessary after a week, I don't know. I actually, I did a, a delivery of groceries. I've done it actually a number of times. And one time, uh, so I took everything out and I said, let me just leave it on the floor. A couple of things in packages, like uh, strawberries, for example. And usually I don't like to refrigerate my strawberries. I'll chomp them down, but they stayed there two or three days. And that was the end of the strawberries. That was oh, nice. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I learned a little about a few things. <laughs> like common sense probably is the... Right. <laughs> so, okay, let me ask you about vaccine versus cure. So there's tons of work going on on both of these. I've got a lot of questions about them, but is it... I've seen people... People meaning actually a friend or two, which is when you start to hear that, you start to get nervous because you're know, more non-experts. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, does it make sense to work on a vaccine or a cure? Is there a, a greater upside if our goal is to reduce the death of people and we have limited resources? Unlimited, then you do everything. And maybe we're close to unlimited now. I don't know. But I'm just curious whether you think one or the other approach is a better approach. I have some thoughts, Allison. Oh. Okay. I think it's both. I think it's all of the above. I actually, cure is not a word that I feel super comfortable using because I don't think that's what we'll end up with. I think it's treatment, right? I think it's reducing the burden of the disease when you have the disease course. And I think the fight's on actually on three fronts. I think it's on the vaccine front. I think it's on the clinical protocol front which doesn't get discussed as much as I think it deserves. And it's on the treatment front. So we're racing for treatments like remdesivir or other antivirals or anti-inflammatories. That's important, especially while we're still trying to build up to getting a vaccine, which is going to take a while. I think the clinical protocols, there's so much hope and so much innovation going on right now with those. Doctors are simply getting better at treating this new disease very quickly. So that's front two. And then vaccines are going to be the population health strategy, I think, that will ultimately have an amazing population health boost. But we need all three of them. And I don't, and the race to each of them, I really think are more complements than substitutes. Allison? Absolutely. Yours. And I would add a fourth front, which, you know, again, doesn't get talked about as much, which is sort of the public health prevention and policy side. Like, what degree of lockdown do we need? How do we do contact tracing in an effective way? Do we have a technology enabled? That's a pretty important piece, too. And vaccines are not 100% effective for everybody, even good vaccines, right? So I don't think it's herd immunity is great. We hope to get there. We hope that we have a vaccine trajectory that looks good. But well, I mean, look at HIV, right? It doesn't have a vaccine. 
it doesn't have a cure, but we have treatments that are pretty amazing and clinical protocols that have grown up around the disease that are also quite effective. And public health messaging, right? That's really driven down the morbidity burden. Right. I think TB is another good analogy. You know, yeah. we, we work on TB at all in all of those ways. So the pace of research on vaccines is, I think it's probably fair to say it's unprecedented in number and speed, but every expert keeps going back to say it'll be a miracle if it's 12 months, 18 months, could take years and years. And I hate hearing that because I do. I just, of course I do. Who doesn't? Right. <laughs> you want it to work. So I don't want you to depress me here, but you know, Moderna not that long ago had a very positive result. <laughs> Uh, then you hear the one in Oxford that didn't have a positive result and the one in China didn't. And that's just three that got in the press for me just kind of barely paying attention. And there's a hundred of them or something like that. Why is it not possible? Why is it not possible? And I don't mean at a 1% level, but a more reasonable level to have a vaccine that will work. I don't know about a hundred percent, but a very high percentage within 12 months from now. And let's say we're beginning of June right now with by next summer. Why is that not possible? I'm going to pitch an analogy that literally just occurred to me. So it is completely untested. You're saying you're the first person to hear this analogy. But what came to mind when you were asking that question was the development of like NBA stars. And what's happening now is the equivalent of the whole country being focused on every single like middle school basketball player who's amazing. And as soon as like one sixth grader in Kansas City makes, you know, whatever, 100 points in a middle school basketball game, we think this is our next, you know, NBA. (laughs) But, you know, that kid and every other sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader has to grow up. A bunch of them are going to get injured. A bunch of them are going to decide not to play basketball anymore. Some of them are only going to be like mediocre great instead of like superstar great. And it's going to be, you know, we're not going to know until their college careers, you know, which two of those 2000 kids who look really promising in middle school are going to be our next, you know, NBA draft picks. Hopefully this isn't a eight-year timeline or whatever I just pitched there, but we are so, you know, the behavioral economics comes in here that we get so excited right now about each, you know, like every, every exciting pre-print undocumented news story about, you know, something working in three monkeys doesn't change the biology and the business model for how a vaccine gets from a promising candidate in a pharma company's library to something we can put in 300 million arms. Okay, may I, I don't, pushback's not the right phrase, but may I offer a rosier viewpoint? Yes, yes. And this isn't going to surprise Allison because I think all of the nerdy girls, we kind of have our own lenses. And I think I'm like the perpetual optimist about (laughs) treatments and vaccines. So I have a more sanguine approach. I do think the one thing about time is just like we said, we won't know if we have immunity for three years. We won't know that for three years. We won't know if a vaccine is safe for quite a long time. I mean, you have to scale it up. You have to have a lot of populations. I think the safety profile of it, that's not something you can speed, but- Is that the rosy view? No, I'm gonna give you the rosy view now. Oh, okay. That's the the, like, keep that in mind, right? Is that there is an inevitable trade-off between speed and safety. That is just a trade-off, like we can get around. But I am rosier because I do think the mRNA vaccines, which is the Moderna vaccine, I don't know if their particular vaccine is gonna be the one that wins the race or makes the NBA draft, but I will tell you what these vaccines are, are a completely new way to produce vaccines. And the production of this new vaccine technology is faster, cheaper, easier to scale. So I actually think that there is a breakthrough 
if the science on this sucker can work, right? So that's why I'm hopeful is that the vaccine technology associated with this particular scientific innovation could lead to very fast production if it ends up working on the scientific front. Yeah. And so I'm more hopeful. I, I really am hopeful on the vaccine. And we have the best minds in the world working on this with a lot of resources. And every single eighth grade, middle school, six foot basketball player is getting groomed right now. So I have faith that one of them will be LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're looking for. Right. And so, in fact, it's true. There are more people that are, that are shooting for this than ever before. Ever before. Uh, more companies, more countries, more experts, more scientists. So I was talking to someone about Broadway theaters the other day. And that's a scary thing. You know, some of those theaters there, the seats there, you're packed, you're really cramped, right? You're packed together and you just can't avoid. And the business model, you know, you'd have to take maybe 20% or 25% of the seats at most. Are we going to see Broadway come back in a year, in two years, in five years? Is it going to take 100% vaccine to work or her immunity or something? Is it going to take that long? Lindsay, what do you think? So I'm going to actually pitch this to Allison because she has a performing arts flair in her family flair and has been and has been posting on things like virtual choir performances and so i'm actually curious to hear her take i will confess that my audio just crapped out for a little bit and so i need the question asked again oh, I'm but so i was sorry. totally yeah. take it that's okay will broadway be back oh will broadway be back I think cities and, you know, gosh, New York is such a unique case. We're going to have to be careful about having more than 50 or 100 people in a space, I think, for a while. If I were Broadway, I might sit out the fall, basically the next flu season before I had, you know, 300. I don't know how big a Broadway theater is, but hundreds of hundreds of people in a space like that. The upside is, you know, people are innovating so wonderfully on, you know, other ways to perform and share art and, you know, share education. So I don't know that we'll have Broadway as we know it, maybe this fall, but maybe we'll have some other fantastic things like, you know, Sondheim's birthday celebration, which was, which was really fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although there is no replacement for the face-to-face. -face. I mean, it's There's true, not. It's true not. In, in school too. So some universities have announced that they're going to have, uh, I mean, they may change this, but have announced that they're going to have in-person classes. Like Notre Dame said this, I think Boston College may have said this. And every day, probably as we go by, that we'll hear more and more schools that are going to make decisions one way or the other, start on time or not, adjust the schedule, and then in-person or, or not in-person. When we looked at that at Dartmouth and at uh, specifically at Tuck the business school. And we looked at our classrooms that the biggest ones are generally, you know, 70, uh, they could hold 72 people. If you're going to stick with a six foot rule, you lose 80% capacity. And there's no business that operates uh, where you could lose 80% capacity and still, and still keep going. But yet you hear some universities and some of them are giant universities. Notre Dame is a good example. And others that are saying, yes, they're going to, what do you think about this? I mean, is this a good idea? How can they possibly make it work? So they came to you and had asked for your advice. We're going to do it. We don't <laughs> want to know whether you think it's smart or not, but yeah. help figure out how to keep 18 year olds from doing what they go to university to do, which is to break all social distancing rules. How do we survive this? I have answers for this. I have answers for this. In fact, I'm advising a, a K to 12 school, an elementary school, a high school, and one college in the Philadelphia area on all of this right now. And the answer is, and it's a cool, fun term, radical cohorting. And, um, you know, you could argue that a business school is actually well set up for this. So it's sort of the same thing I just described for summer camp. Put the students in a group. We can argue about how big group that group can be, maybe bigger than 10, 
probably smaller than 80. So maybe that 70 person, like when I was in business school, we had our section first year that was 70 students. And that's their group for the semester. Ideally, that's also the group they're living with and eating with and sleeping with. But the smaller and importantly, tighter closed that network is, maybe you give them three faculty, um, if faculty are willing to teach in person, and they take all their classes with, you know, those three faculty offer the three courses they're going to offer. And there's as little mixing as possible. If you do that, if you do and you do it completely, um, again, if it's residential and dining and everything, you can put seven, those 70 students in the same classroom together. You don't necessarily have to have everybody masked all the time. It's just they can't, you know, go home for Thanksgiving and come back. And they can't be, you know, do an intramural sports club and a, you know, biotech club with other people outside that 70 people. But these tight, and if you can teach outside, that's even better. <laughs> but that kind of radical cohorting at whatever scale you're able to pull it off is the solution. More than fooling around with calendars, uh, you know, start early. I mean, that, that's fine too, to start early and be done by Thanksgiving. But it's, it's it'll get you further than like daily temperature screening, you know, single, every time we're talks for undergrad about trying to get single rooms, everyone only, you know, one kid per room, less helpful than this kind of tight closed clusters. Now, but what happens to, I guess, your the, the six foot rule is, is not important in this scenario. If you, yeah. And again, like how you launch in the fall and leave in the, at the end of the term is our, our question. Lots and lots of questions raised. But mm. if that group, it works just like your household now, it's just 70 students and three faculty instead of mom, dad, and two kids. And would you do a quarantine before you start to make sure they're all starting clean? That would be great. You know, having both PCR and antibody testing would be great. Or you can get everyone to campus and then quarantine for two weeks. You know, there are lots, lots of lots of logistics to work out. But if everyone kind of starts out, whatever, with a clean slate and you have mechanisms for isolating or quarantine people if, if there are cases. The great thing about this is if one person in that, you know, section, section A ends up sick, you know that it's only the other 69 people and three faculty that are exposed. It's not the entire student body. So instead of kind of having to shut the whole place down or test 500 people, if you know the exposure has been limited to that cohort, it makes management, containment, tracing a lot easier. You really have to keep them together and not uh, yeah. do anything with anyone else that means yeah yeah it's you know it works great for like a tiny residential undergrad education or you know a small day school mm -hmm. um, it's a little harder to imagine for graduate education but not impossible interesting so i don't know if you've written about that or will write about that but i'm, I'm writing about it right now <laughs> okay yeah that's very interesting because i haven't seen or heard that before and that's the type of information that should be part of the decision-making process in universities and any schools, really, right? Yeah. That's great. We, uh, we're just about out of time, and I only have about 25 more questions. So I'm only, <laughs> it's not going to quite work. But so let me ask you this more of an opinion here, because it's about how people will behave later. But let's say there is, eventually, we won't go back into the argument about when the vaccine or how long it'll take to get the next LeBron James, but there'll be a vaccine at some point, COVID-19 will be eradicated. It will not exist in the It will population. not be eradicated. Let's not use eradicated. Okay. <laughs> that means we've taken it off the face of the earth. We've managed, contained. Yes, contained in the way that smallpox is contained. How about that? We've eradicated smallpox. Smallpox is eradicated. So why <laughs> can't you eradicate this one? <laughs> Worst case, it's the seasonal flu, right? right okay. It's okay. just with us. It's not anything anyone's really worried about anymore. The question is, do you think people 
are going to go back to their lives as they were before. How long lasting are some of the behavioral changes that were so many of us, almost everyone, but I don't know about everyone, is engaging in right now? You know, what, are we learning some habits for life about public safety and personal safety? Or are we going to go back to what we've always done before? I don't know if there's a science to this, but certainly in a, I'm interested in your opinion on this. So in my opinion, yes, that we are rewiring our behavioral DNA during this time. No one knows for sure, but, you know, as human beings, we, again, are wired to avoid pathogens, right? And so, I mean, we just want to protect ourselves. And yeah, you know, I think the news media, like there's, you know, the people partying in Florida or the people, you know, sort of being silly right now, being in groups. But I think for most of us, I think our behavior will be altered dramatically. I mean, Allison studies behavioral change from a scientific perspective, but I do think our this is a watershed moment, right? We still take off our shoes for TSA. I think masking will be with us mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And other protective practices. And I think some broader, you know, structural, social, economic changes. I mean, I think telehealth is here for good. I hope. I think there aren't going to be any more excuses about like, we. there's no way to hold a conference remotely. Mm -hmm. You know, I think like as, as academics, our, you know, must travel list is going to get a lot shorter. And same with online education. Like we didn't solve it this spring for sure. We need to get kind of past Zoom U, but the opportunities for remote working medicine, you know, conferencing, networking are, we're never going back. That's a big sea change. Yeah. I think about some of the business behavioral changes that relate to business. And I think that's probably right. Yeah. I don't see any reason why I need to go back to my travel schedule. And I'm one of millions that are saying the same, the same thing. Right. And, but how people behave day to day in terms of personal health, we're going to have masks a bit more often. I don't know about all the time, but even today, it's not all the time. But uh, are we going to be willing to go into the, that thousand seat Broadway theater where we're packed in? And we know that somebody could sneeze with just a regular good old fashioned flu. And we know what can happen to that now more than we ever knew before. We kind of knew, but we didn't know. And now we're alert. To, we're alert to it. So, yeah, I do think there'll be some long lasting uh, changes. Uh, well, listen, Allison and, and Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me and my audience on the SITCAST, hearing your views. And we know a lot of people will turn to Dear Pandemic. I do every day now. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> yes, I do. To see the latest and to try to understand what the heck's going on. And the only bit of advice I have for you is keep being positive for the rest of us because it is painful to yes. hear the bitter, terrible truth when it's going in a really bad direction, as it has. And I feel like we're turning the corner. We have turned the corner. And I'm going to keep dreaming on those NBA stars. I'm going to keep dreaming. All right. Great. Right. <laughs> That's great guidance for us, Sid. Thank you. Thank All you, right. Sid. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.